Your connection to our treasured Catholic faith all day, every day. This is the Guadalupe Radio Network, radio for your soul. Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, O oh, my Jesus, forgive us of our sins, save us from the fires of hell, and lead all souls to heaven, especially those most need thy mercy. Our Lady of Guadalupe, pray for us. St. Dominic de Guzman, pray for us. Blessed Peter Tutrot, pray for us. Let's play a special prayer also for the Holy Father, Pope Francis, as he's recovering, and we, we pray that... Um, that our, our Lord will give him the blessings and graces that he needs most and that he recovers and that he returns to the ministry that Christ has established for him and the successors of Peter. In Jesus' name we pray. Well, lots to get to today. And I'm talking about, um, so today I'm talking about old Joe Biden sending the Gestapo to your home um, to ask you if you've gotten a vaccine. Uh, we're talking about more about the critical race hypothesis the Masonic connection to the separation of church and states. And later at about the 20 minute mark, Deacon Kevin Stevenson from the Diocese of Tulsa will be back on the show to talk about the 1921 Tulsa race massacre um, in, the, in the involvement in the Catholic church in that massacre, um, in that tragedy and what he's doing to advocate for healing around that issue. So stay tuned in to hear from the deacon and so but let me first let me tell you how happy i am that you you tuned in today it's always a pleasure to be speaking with you um, i really enjoy it and i just always want you to know that jesus truly does love you that he's truly there for you and he truly wants you to invite him into every aspect of your life especially those parts of your life where you don't think you need him there right and if this is your first time listening to the David O. Gray Show, welcome in. And if you want to call in or opine or ask a question, just call in at 877-757-9424. And you hear the voice of one of our producers, Cecil, or Diane, who's in the studio today. She's, she'll be working for Cecil next week. So, uh, And we'll get you on. Also, make sure um, if you want to speak to the deacon in the second half of the show, you can also call in, ask any questions um, of him about the Tulsa uh, race massacre. So... You may be getting a visit um, to your home soon from the Gestapo asking if you've been vaccinated or not. Yesterday, June 6th, during a speech about the coronavirus, Biden, a man who a number of Americans voted for, said that we do uh, now we uh, quotes. I'm quoting here. Now we need to go to to the go community by community, neighborhood by neighborhood and oftentimes door by door, literally knocking on doors to get the remaining people, unquote. Then Press Secretary um, Jim Psaki today defended the creation of the Gestapo, the state police, this counterintelligence program, saying, uh, quote, what we're trying to do here as a federal government is protect the American people and save lives, preventing people from getting COVID and a coronavirus. And what we've seen over the course of the last several months is that uh, one of the many barriers is access and people knowing where they can get the vaccine, where to get the vaccine, the efficacy and safety of vaccine. And 
And I think that they believe that's that's, that's true. I mean, because just remember just a little while ago, uh, um, Joe Biden said that one of the barriers of many black Americans getting vaccine is that black folk don't know how to use the Internet. And they're scared because of past experiments that black folks have been involved in, such as the Tuskegee Airmen. Now, if you don't know the difference between the Tuskegee Airmen and the Tuskegee Experiment or Tuskegee University, <laughs> I don't know if you should be commenting on those things. But um, Basaki does have a point that I think Catholics can agree with. I think the state does have a role to play in promoting the common good um, through laws and legislation, enforcement of laws and legislation. And we'll touch on that again when we talk about the role of the church in the world. But keep in mind that if America's new Gestapo secret police force comes to your home and asking you um, whether you got a vaccine or not, that you do not have to answer them. Not, not because there's some sort of HIPAA privacy laws, because that's not the case here, because that only applies to healthcare plans and healthcare providers and um, healthcare HIPAA cover agencies in the Gestapo isn't one of those, right? So um, you don't have HIPAA, right, privacy here. But but simply because it's not their business. And you do not have to submit your private information to this counterintelligence program in which you will be uh, reported to having either been compliant or not compliant with this 21st century cult. America is dividing, I believe. And, and Dr. Anthony Fauci noted, he noted this on Independence Day um, this week, that America is dividing into two camps. There's the vaccinated and there's the unvaccinated. The Delta variant is the latest uh, work to collect more Americans into the vaccinated camp. And, to this, and this new secret police force may be knocking at your door. It aims to find out which camp you belong to, the compliant or the not compliant. Whichever one you are, you're not breaking the law or sinning against God by refusing to tell the Gestapo your private information. It's your body. It's your choice. And that's all I want to tell you about that. Uh, in a new poll conducted between June 23rd and June 25th, the Trafalgar Group asked um, likely 2022 general election voters, do you believe Americans have as much personal freedom today as we did before COVID-19? And 50% of Americans say they do believe that they have less personal freedom today than before the coronavirus pandemic. Now, I'm usually suspicious of polls, but I think I, I, I would tend to believe this one uh, for the, the reasons why I, I think the, the majority of Americans probably say they feel less free today. Because I think a lot of demands are being put on people um, over this past year, right? Things like to wear a mask in certain places or face covering to get a vaccine. I think there's a lot of bullying and, and pressure involved from the media and from government and corporations. I mean, people have been paying money for people to comply, right? So I, I, th I, think, there's, I think there's a just reason why people will feel that they don't feel as free as they used to, right? And perhaps some people may feel this, this whole reaction to the coronavirus in a lot of ways, I think for some people may feel like psychological bullying in many ways or psychological abuse from being having, they, they, they feel like they have to be shut in, right? or they feel like they have to comply this, this new way of, of doing things. Um, and many people just don't feel safe and secure because they don't feel that they have to control their lives. They feel free. So whenever someone takes control of your life, you should feel less, less free. I think someone called in, I think while I was talking about, um, 
my Biden Gestapo comparison, right? And I get that, right? And so we're talking about uh, we're not calling um, uh, Biden's um, uh, Hitler or anything like that, right? The comparison isn't there. The comparison is that people coming to your door collecting information, counterintelligence, right? So we can't take these analogies too far, right? Um, but also, we're living in a country where groups of Americans are not allowed to make their own choices. Choices that won't, will not necessarily harm other people. But they're being forced to live a life that's not their own. So what do I mean by that? There's a hypothesis floating, hypothesis floating around under the name of a theory called a critical race theory. It's not a fully fleshed out hypothesis, so we can't really call it a theory, right? Because the critical race hypothesis right now only includes one data set, the law. It takes a look at the law, the application of law, and law enforcement. And it says because of these things, um, some people, black Americans, are being put at disadvantage, right? So this hypothesis, right? It's being treated as some sort of divine law, which says that you're not your own person. Let me put this out there for you. You may agree, you may not agree. But the critical race theory is saying that if you're a white person, right now, you're 400 years old, and you own slaves. You've lynched black people. It's saying that even though you're alive now, you're also alive during Jim Crow. You personally owned a restaurant where you did not let white black people enter through the front door. If you're white, you were a police officer at some point, point in time in your life you pulled over a black person you shot them death the critical race hypothesis forcing white americans into a mental condition i think is called psychosis where you're detached from reality and you have replaced that reality with your own imagination imagining if you're nathan bedford force an american civil war um who's american civil war general in the first kkk grand wizard that you're not free to be yourself because you have to do penance for a life that you did not live over the past 400 years Black Americans are also have to pretend as if we're 400 years old, according to the critical race hypothesis, that we too are not allowed to be free to live our own life because we're still in slavery at this very moment. I was just whipped by my master this morning, fresh wounds on my back right now. Yesterday, I went to vote and I couldn't because I'm black. I tried to go buy a fountain drink and I was denied service because I'm black. Last week, I got shot by the police. I'm not allowed to tell my personal story racism because I have to be assigned these other stories of every other black person for the last 400 years. And I cannot claim my, and I can't, can't claim my condition has gotten any better because I have to own every tragedy. And Deacon Stevenson is going to be on later. We're going to talk about the Tulsa race riots. And I have to own that. I have to say that was me there, right? I, I can't have my own story because I have to be assigned these other stories because apparently I live in 1920. And I live in some place like Long Island, New York, or Anna, Illinois, and because I'm a victim. The Catholic Church teaches that the first human right everyone has is the right to life. And you have a right to live your own life. We do not have to accept the mental condition of psychosis. And you do not have to accept everyone else's psychosis. If someone believes they're a frog, or, or that a biological man wants to tell you that they're a woman, or someone tells you that they, they're still personally affected by slavery today, you don't have to accept their psychosis. Right? And I'm not saying that there are some residual effects of slavery. There are. What I'm talking about is people's personal story. There's no one alive today that was uh, in chattel slavery prior to the Civil War. 
And even the people who got out of slavery in the 1980s, 1800s, I never heard any of them use slavery as an excuse. I mean, these were some of the most accomplished people in the history of the world. For example, the literacy rate of black Americans over 20 years out of slavery shot up to amazing percentages that we never seen in the history of the world. People went from being literate to like 80% literate. I mean, in just a span of 20 years, that, that's amazing. And a generation out of slavery produced some of the most brilliant minds, people like Frederick Douglass and Martin Delaney and Monroe Charter and W.D. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington and so many other people who didn't use slavery as an excuse or racism as an excuse. There was a whole generation who took miserable jobs as sharecropping who never complained about racism or slavery. But just last year at Juilliard, of all places, the students there were crying about racism because they had to watch the movie Roots. They were crying about racism because they had to watch the movie Roots. And then the teacher, they, they were given black healing spaces. They were Jim Crow and given their own healing spaces. The faculty had to read books by atheists and black supremacists like Talat Nahasi Coates and Robert D'Angelo and Ibram X. Kendi and, and Michelle Anderson to understand systematic racism. I mean, it's to the point, I feel bad for some Americans, especially for school teachers, especially those who are on, uh, in, in like more liberal um, school districts that are being forced to accept lie after lie from, and forced to uh, uh, give students these privileges that are racism in themselves. I mean, it's a lie that, that the critical race theory is teaching history. Their bail didn't start a history um, um, lesson plan when he created the hypothesis of critical race theory or the critical race hypothesis. He didn't create a history lesson plan. And that's not what successors are doing either. What they're trying to do is force you to accept a lie, forcing you into this mental condition called psychosis, taking away your freedom and your own God-given life. And I'm here to tell you that you do not have to accept what they're feeding you. And black Americans, you're not 400 years old. None of us are that I know of. <laughs> and you're not personally Trayvon Martin, though you may feel that story may relate to yours. You're not necessarily him. You're not Kunta Kinte. And shame on anyone who wants to take away your own personal story and give you this assignment of someone else's story. I'm not saying that, like I said, I'm not saying people have experienced racism or prejudice and ignorance. I've experienced all those things. You may have, and you should tell your own personal story, especially to the person who may have harmed you, but you're not a victim. And I want you to stop acting like one. I think you have a story of personal triumph. You were created in the image and likeness of God. You belong to Christ. That's a story of victory. Speaking of liars and victims. On June 18th, in response to U.S. Catholic bishops, um, well, we thought the Democrats may have thought they were going to, like, condemn Joe Biden and, you know, about the Holy Eucharist and care for his soul by receiving unworthy. But 59 Democrat in the U.S. House, of, House in, the, in the United States Congress penned what they called a statement of principles in which they stated in part, I quote, we believe in a separation of church and state allows for our faith to inform our public duties and best serve our constituents. The sacrament of Holy Communion is central to the life of practicing Catholics and weaponizing the Eucharist to Democrat lawmakers for their support of women's safe 
and legal access to abortion is contradictory. No elected officials have been threatened with being denied the Holy Eucharist as they supported and have supported policies contrary to church teachings, including supporting death penalties, separating children from their parents, denying asylum to those seeking safety in the United States, limiting access for hungry and food insecure, and denying rights to dignity immigrants, unquote. I'm not sure that I have to explain, I don't have time to explain in the next four minutes, why I have to explain to adults, adult Catholics, that the Holy Eucharist was already weaponized around 33 AD is weaponized against sin and death. Yes, it's a weapon. If you receive it unworthily, you'll be damaged. That's what Paul teaches. And if you receive it unworthily, you'll heal. You'll be healed. It's, it's a weapon in a sense. So let's just stop this silly language, weaponized. And I, I don't feel as if though I should have to explain to adult Catholics how in, the intrinsic evil and grave sin of killing babies in a womb that's different from disagreements about immigration control policy. But I think it's ridiculous how people always want to cry about separation of church and state whenever they don't like what the church has to say. It's always quite convenient that people who are, when, when they're quite open and honest about what part of their life that they don't want the church in. Right? And that's what this is all about. They don't want the church telling them that killing babies in a womb is, is a grave sin that breaks communion with God. And I also don't think that I should have to explain the history of the Catholic Church to adults that, that there was never a time when the Catholic Church advocated its duty in the world to state governments. From Augustus to Constantine to the Charlemagne to today, the Catholic Church has never given the state free exercise over God's people. To believe that the state has higher authority than the church is an error. It is the church. The church is one holy Catholic apostolic. That's the church. It's the church that Christ said against will help prevail against against prevail against. So the, the state is something much lower than that. And the Catholic Church has never believed in the idea of separation of church and state. In fact, Pope Leo the thirteenth, in his similar work against Freemasonry and Humanity Genius, he argued against the separation of church and state on matters that affect the well being of citizens. And he, he said it's wrong to believe that the Catholic Church is attempting is wrong to believe that the church is attempting to usurp um, um, the state of his rights and his, his sovereignty, which he directs men to be obedient to the laws of God. And Pope Leo XIII said that what the church is doing is guiding and reminding the state that it ought to be brought into conformity with God's will for his people so that justice will be joined to clemency. Quote, equity to authority and moderation to law giving, that no one's rights must be violated that order and public tranquility are be maintained and that the poverty of those are in need is as far as possible to relieve by the public and private charity, unquote. In fact, Pope Leo, he wasn't even the first to argue against the separation of the state. He wasn't even the first Pope to argue against this idea that the church is separate from the state. Um, Pope Pius VIII in his encyclical called, uh, two years ago, which is 1830, he argued that the idea of church and state came from the Freemasons for the purpose of usurping control of education away from the church. The Catholic Church has always been had schools and education universities, and they saw that Freemasons were trying to take that authority away from the church and start their own schools, state schools. In his 1890 encyclical from the Apostolic Throne, Pope Leo XIII proved that the Masonic program 
was a plot to replace the Catholic Church with Freemasonry as the world's moral order. It was the first reset. And the first goal in the Masonic program was to abolish all religious schools and replace them with atheistic state-controlled schools. The second goal was to craft laws and public policy in a way that achieves separation of church and state and separation of church and social life so that states and people would be absolutely independent and free from clerical influence and elements in any other manner replace it with the Masonic influences so that Freemasonry will be, quote, quoting Pope Leo XIII here, the master and controller of everything. The third goal Pope Leo XIII said of the Masonic program was to strip all ecclesiastical bodies of their ownership or property, thereby stripping the church of its own freedom and independence. So when you read the first Grand Lodge Constitution from 1733, where it says in the article, Article 1, that um, concerning God and religion, this is Anderson's Constitution in Grand Lodge, England, it teaches freedom from religion. So that Freemasonry becomes a center of union. And then you read documents crafted by some of the two most influential Freemasons at that time, Thomas Jefferson and Marquise de Lafayette. That is the Declaration of Independence and, uh, and, uh, of the American Revolution and Declaration of Human Rights of Men from the French Revolution. You see some of the same Masonic teachings throughout. In the First Amendment, uh, talking about Congress shall make no laws establishing or prohibiting free exercise thereof. And then um, Articles 1 through 18 in Declaration of Rights of Men, it's literal of references of autonomy from God or from religion and autonomy from man to pursue naturalism. So you, you, you read all these documents, Masonic documents with these first constitutions created by Freemasons, and you see what this is all about. And then when the reign of terror began on October 10th, 1789, when the rights of men were enforced in France and church property was seized, was seized and sold, and when images of Christ in France were removed, desecrated, and destroyed, and then the culture conf came a few years later in Germany, we knew what separation in church and state was all about. It was code for destroy the Catholic Church. In closing, I like to say in short, why does the Catholic Church reject separation church and state, aside from it being a Masonic import? Here's the reason. Man and woman were created in the image and likeness of God. Therefore, they belong to God, and we cannot render them unto Caesar. Because the human person is not the property of the state, the church has a duty to inform the state how to care for God's people. The manner by which modern governments exercise their governance is through laws and legislation. Therefore, it is the role of the church to inform the state in this regards, its, its legislation, and whenever the state refuses to listen to the church, we see what happens. Death, decay, debauchery. Any law that does not reflect the divine law always produces sin and death. Therefore, the church can never advocate its duty in this world to care for God's people, because in doing so, it would deny the very reason why Christ came into the world. So anyone who says they believe in separation in church and state, they deny the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. Christ is king over all, and the only separation in this world is the separation between righteousness and evil. And that's all I know about that. After the break, we'll have Deacon Kevin Stevenson on from the Diocese of Tulsa. And we'll be on, um, he'll be talking about the 1921 Tulsa Massacre. And we'll be right back. The David L. Gray Show on Guadalupe Radio Network. Radio for your soul.
Change a station, change a life. Hi, this is Len Oswald, president of the Guadalupe Radio Network, with your GRN Family Minute. We all know people who are avid listeners to all kinds of media that are not necessarily edifying to their souls. In fact, some media outlets cause confusion, create anger and frustration, or even worse, water down our Catholic faith. So, please be a promoter of the Guadalupe Radio Network and change someone's life by simply telling them about their local GRN station or to listen online, or even better yet, to download our GRN app. That way, they can take the GRN with them wherever they go. Change a station, change a life. God bless you for being part of the GRN family. Instead of fighting the crowds, isn't it so much easier to hop online and do your shopping in the comfort of your own home? Did you know that you can help the Guadalupe Radio Network when you shop online? All you need to do is shop on Amazon Smile and 0.5% of your purchase goes to the GRN. Just go to AmazonSmile.com and select La Promesa Foundation as your nonprofit of choice. La Promesa is the parent company of Guadalupe Radio. It's that simple to give a little extra help to the Guadalupe Radio Network. Catholic Radio was there for me when I needed it. Even though I didn't think I needed it, it was there for me. I want everybody to know that I'm giving, not so that I can sit there and say that I gave the GRN for any other reason but this. I want that radio station to be there for anyone else who needs it also. They may not think they need it, but it's going to be there for them, whether it's in the future, whether it's right now. I want that radio station to always be there for them, just like it was there for me. The Guadalupe Radio Network. Radio for your soul. Welcome back in to the David O'Grey Show, Voicing Truth and Reason on Guadalupe Radio Network. Uh, welcome back, and I have a exciting guest for you. He's back on the show. This is Deacon Kevin Stevenson from the Diocese of Tulsa. Welcome back on the show, Deacon. Welcome. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you fine. How's it going? I'm doing well. Uh, can you see me well as well? Yeah, you look good. You look good. Um, so how you been? I've been doing well, just been doing well, just enjoying the summer and, um, just celebrating the 4th of July. So, um, um, I'm just so glad I'm just, I'm blessed by God. Yes, you definitely are. And so you're from the diocese of Tulsa, I ordained deacon, I'm married. And I think you and a wife have children, right? Yes. We have six children and we have nine grandchildren. Wow. Well, you truly are blessed, man. That's fantastic. Yeah, we are. Yeah. And, and all of them, except for one lives here in Oklahoma. So it gets really busy mm-hmm. on certain days. So yeah. 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 I bet. Yeah. That's a lot of people to see on holidays and things like that. So <laughs> that's good. <laughs> and, uh, you know, last year or was it, maybe it was a year before I remember, and I'll be honest with you, you know, um, you know, I went to a historically black university and, and I, I think what I found out that even though I went to a university that was predominantly black, those were teachers were black. I guess there was an assumption that we just knew black history, but I didn't find yeah. out about the Tulsa race riots or Tulsa massacre until man, I think I was in my thirties. Is that is that a rare thing? It, it is. I mean, I was the same way. I was raised in New Jersey. I had family in New York, Boston, on the East Coast, and I came to. Oklahoma in the 90s to go to Old Roberts University. I wasn't Catholic at that time. I was Protestant. 
and um, I was ordained. I was I was licensed a Baptist minister, and I discovered about the Tulsa race riots when um, Dr. McCutcheon, who was the senior pastor of Mount Zion Baptist Church in the Greenwood section, um, he he was my mentor, and I and I was assistant pastor for that for the Baptist Church. And it was there that I discovered, this is like in the late 90s, about the Tulsa race riot, because Mount Zion Baptist Church was actually burnt down in 1921. And so that was a okay. personal, it was a shock to me that I was assistant pastor in a church that was burnt down during the riots, and there were actually descendants of the family members that were part of that congregation. So I had a personal upfront um, stories from actually people that were descendants of that experience um, here in Oklahoma. Yeah. And a couple of things have brought out more people's awareness to this. I think one was, um, the television show Watchmen. I think that's on, um, maybe HBO. I think a lot of that right. they featured the Tulsa. And so that brought it and, and then it's been, there's been more awareness about, about it in recent years, but can we back up for a moment and just give us an idea, explain to us what happened and some, ideas about why it happened. Yes, well, um, I'm gonna quote from an article that was released by the, by the Oklahoma Diocese on the, on the anniversary of the riots. And basically there was, it, the whole thing was sparked by a false accusation of a young teenage black male of a, of a sexually assaulting a teenage white female. Note the word false. And then that, in, in that um, ensued a racial violence that um, that's happened on May 31st in um, 1921, and it resulted in 10,000 um, refugees of, of people being affected by that, and thousands were either were, were, were seriously injured and hundreds were, were murdered through this whole event. So, so that's what happened. And, um, and I, I, again, you know, we hear these stories, but it was an absolute tragedy of what happened there. But I think what has become more of a tragedy is the, some of the false narratives that have um, come from that today based upon an event that happened then. And it's people here that can really tell what happened, but that's what happened. There was a false accusation between two young people, one being falsely accused and it sparked um, a riot. Um, and when we talk about the race riots, we're talking about an area that was called the, the, um, the Black Wall Street. So it was, it was during that time in the 1900s where you find, and they're inspired by Booker T. Washington. I noticed that you had spoken about different back leaders, but, and I, I follow Booker T. Washington. I like his philosophy of independence and self-sufficiency. And that was actually a product of that here in Tulsa, where you had an entrepreneurial mindset. So this is, these are people that were descendants of slaves, you know, that, mm. that, that became professionals like lawyers and doctors and business owners. They owned hundreds of acres of property um, yeah. and they were able on their own with their own two hands to build enterprise and to build hotels it was it was just incredible and you're looking at Jim Crow time you know so it was a phenomenal phenomenal um, success based upon Booker T Washington's philosophy of self-sufficiency and independence and, and and so on so that's that that was the backdrop and it was that in that particular area where the riots occurred. Interesting. Yeah, yeah Booker T. Washington, he's always a, a good read. Um, and so that's fascinating. Tell us more about just Black Wall Street in, in, in itself. Um, 
so we're talking about a time when there was segregation. Was was Black Wall Street a necessity because um, blacks in that area were not able to get service in in other parts of the town, or or was Black Wall Street, like you say, was it solely just an enterprise of uh, blacks showing their their talents and their expertise in building businesses? I think it was a combination of two. I mean, I think out of pure necessity. I mean, uh, as I read from what I've read, there are African Americans that came across the country to come to Oklahoma to get land. I mean, it, it, so you, you you had that opportunity to purchase land, and um and and with that, some entrepreneurial African Americans who are having difficulty in different parts of the country came to Oklahoma um, to start their own business. So really, it was it was actually people pulling themselves up from their bootstraps. They were given the opportunity to get land. I mean, it was it was um there, there were just land opportunities and about forty, I think about up to maybe hundred acres were available. And African Americans found this opportunity to do so. Then also too, you had freemen as well that that did that. But it was just it was just an example of of the American spirit of of just the mm-hmm. opportunity to to do something. And we see this phenomena spring up um, where where um, men and black men and women were able to be self-sufficient and to care for one another and uh, we were able to organize and to build prosperity and be self-sufficient i think that that was the piece and of course all those resources were passed within the community as well you know Mm. so it was it was a wonderful wonderful experiment of what people can do post-slavery you know through during the early 1900s which was a very difficult time as well yeah, so yeah, sure. Give us a, a window in time there, because we know that the the riots would occur in nineteen twenty one. How long right. was this this community there and thriving? From what I and again, I'm not an expert on that, but what I gathered, it was literally the early nineteen hundreds. You know that we start seeing mm. it coming together. You know, with just the thoughts of people acquiring land. So I was like two nineteen ten around that time. Yeah. So there, there was, it was about a decade where this was slowly developing it was and it was at its peak um at least at that time um around 1921 you know and this is post-world war one so we also had veterans yeah. um african americans that had served at war you know and so they were so they were, so i think that had something to do with the enterprising spirit you know if if african americans could go to war and come back oh, okay. it was a sense of pride so you had veterans that were that were there that were part of that and you even had a kind of a like a militia um in fact like a police force of a well-seasoned military african-americans that could protect their own which is part of what made the conflict even even more um um difficult oh, okay. because you had world war one <coughs> veterans that were that were trying to defend themselves you know while while this right was going on so it was it was um it was quite quite a quite quite a situation and then my church well mount zion baptist church is one of the churches that was raised to the ground um, doing that. So there was also a very viable religious life as well. Okay. Yes, yeah, so let's let's get into that a little bit because I want to talk about sure. what was the Catholic Church doing during that area. But yeah, I like that you bring that out, the early 1900s. It seemed to be, man, it was a phenomenal time of Black enterprise in this country. Mm-hmm. We've seen a lot of activities, a lot of movements being started. I think most of your um, your older um, black Greek like Greek letter fraternities, they would start around this time. You would see um, then the Niagara movement with a lot of uh, black leaders. You would see 
um, NAACP, um, the young lady who had the um, the hot comb, one of the first black female millionaires. Yep. Um, so man, just a, it's a, a phenomenal time of just black Americans, many of them who were born into slavery, a lot yes. of them free, just, um, <laughs> like you said, pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and, and creating amazing things and doing amazing things. Right. And so, so the riot happens, um, as you say, some sort of false accusations right. involving a young black boy assaulting a black girl. And you talked uh, about how there, you talked about how there were some sort of false narratives out there about that were harmful. Talk a little bit about those. Oh, well, and by the way, we're speaking with um, Deacon um, Kevin Stevenson from the Diocese of Tulsa, and he's on a uh, voicing Truth and Reason. We're talking about the, the Tulsa race massacre from 1921 and getting into um, some of the um, Catholic response to that. So go ahead, Deacon. Right. right. So it was um, a young um, teenage African-American male and a young teenage white female. And, and, there was, and, and there were false accusations. That, and again, it was never proved in court that he, this young man was, was arrested. And, um, and you had these World War I veterans coming down to protect him. Um, and he disappeared. And the white, white woman girl disappeared. And so that, that, is, that is true. So what we have here is oral tradition. Um, who were these kids? And I, and I heard from a, an attorney that was here that has been studying it. And he brought up, it's his oral tradition. Again, I can't verify, but that actually these two kids had a relationship. You know, um, it's, it's almost like a Romeo and Juliet type of story that they really actually had a relationship that they loved each other. And, um, and because of that relationship, and this is very interesting about interracial relationships. And we'll see that in time when, when we have other types of conflicts that it, it disturbed some of the, the worst hatred in families. Mm. And it was based upon that relationship that they had that, that is believed that's what stirred it. And it's rumored being that he disappeared. And she, there's no historical record of where they went, but it was rumored, and this is oral tradition, that they actually were, were taken out of Oklahoma and they eventually got married in another part of the country. Married. Wow. So, so wow. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, okay. Oh my goodness. So, so where this ties, where this ties in for me, um, as you know, I have my own nonprofit organization called Association Catholic Counselors, and we deal with mental health. And you brought up mental health. You know, um, a lot of this stuff is a result of, men of mental illness. I mean, if you really think about the overreaction or what people may have to those things, it's really a form of mental illness. And I, I look at things from that perspective. So what yeah. I believe it could be true that that these people really did love really did love each other. So what I was thinking that I know people that are actors here in Oklahoma that are part of the acting industry, you know, and so many of them are Catholic and 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 I know them personally. And I thought, well, what if we could bring this story from that perspective to the to the screen? And and the, and there's a Catholic perspective actually. When this unfolded, um, Holy Family Cathedral was holding an event. And they had a school at that time. And for what I gather, it was even with Jim Crow, it was inter it was interracial. So that was a that was a huge thing. And and when this occurred, I believe it was on Saturday night, when because they were holding some type of um, ceremony, um, it was a group of white Catholics 
Um, it was the Knights of Columbus, and I'm trying to get the name of the other group. There was a, a women's group as well called uh, um, the Cathedral Nuns and the Ladies of St. Vincent de Paul Society and the Knights of Columbus. This was, this was recorded in the Tulsa Tribune, June 6, 1921, that they provided food, clothing, and shelter for 400 Black families. 400. So our cathedral, our cathedral became a safe wow. haven while this whole thing was erupting. I mean, just, just imagine our church, our Catholic church became a safe haven for 400 families. And we would do what we always do as a church. We we're binding up wounds. We we're providing safety. And actually, I can say there was a Presbyterian church that, that, that assisted. It was only those two denominations at that time that were working together and providing safe haven for, for these families. I had never heard that story, never. So this is part of my own frustration. So there's a crisis and we have other groups in this country with other perspectives running this narrative and not really telling what really happened. And there's no mention of what the Catholic church had done. And so it was amazing to me. I was so proud to discover that. So that's part of the story that we want to tell. We want to bring that to film yeah. about how how as a Catholic church, and we're dealing with um, St. Paul Vincent Society and the Knights of Columbus, how they rescued 400 families from, from, from this turmoil and, and gave them food, protected babies. We were, in the, we were in the middle of all of that. To me, that is the story. That's the true story out of all of this, out of, yeah. out of chaos and mental illness, and that's what it is. The church became a place of refuge. And so I wanna bring that to film. And, uh, and, and particularly centering around the love relationship between these two teenagers, which I believe was innocent. And, and I was, mm -hmm. so, we're, so we're gonna take a, we're gonna kind of fictionalize it because we don't really know what the story is, but also bring historical events and tell the story from a Catholic perspective about number one, and I'm a therapist, when I deal with people that are traumatized, the first thing we wanna do is tell the truth. What is the truth? Number two, mm -hmm. we wanna bring people to a place of forgiveness. And number three, we wanna bring people to a place of reconciliation. And I think, I believe as a church, as a Catholic church, we can, we can take this crisis, we can take this incident, this massacre, and bring a, a redemptive message to it. And I don't think anything like that's been done in this country. And, and I, I believe that we're uniquely, because I'm in Oklahoma, I've been a part of that church, you know, and we're here. I would love to involve our community in bringing that story forward, to bring a message of healing and reconciliation to uh, um, to me this whole reaction is mental illness it, it really is because it's irrational what actually happened you know and and mm -hmm. beneath all that fear that beneath all that is fear you know and so um, that's what we want to do is to bring that to film of course that's going to take lots of money if you want to do a full feature <laughs> film i mean lots of money yeah. but you know what if it's really god's will i believe that god's going to raise up the resources to do that but uh, i think as a catholic church we can certainly be a message of healing and, and, and reconciliation and forgiveness. I, I think that's, that's the piece. And I think the actors, and I want them to all be Oklahoma based. They, I think oh, yeah. I would like them to be descendants of that movement. I think I want them to start experiencing forgiveness and healing as, as the story unfolds. So that, that's basically what I'm, what I'm looking at with, with my organization yeah. and with me being here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You know, and I've pitched this to different groups and the, the, there's some warm thing, people that are not quite sure, you know, because this is new, this is different. This is not the typical narrative that's being run around the country about how we need to 
and I'm not going to get involved in the pol political side of things. But what I, for me as a Catholic, I think we should be in the business of, of, of telling the truth, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Yeah, and that's a, that's a really a beautiful story, um, and that I think I I see the potential of how that narrative, which seems to be based on a truth because there's just there's just some things there i mean there's a story out here in the wind about what may have caused a story but we don't know the names of the young man or the young girl and so it's it's this it's in there we don't know them today it would seem like there would be some a body right um <laughs> or something there yeah it's there in tulsa that but um, so it seems likely that this was a story of love, like a Romeo and Juliet sort of story, and they got away and they, they lived their life. And so, but left behind them was a lot of tragedy, right? A lot of tragedy. And yeah, there had to be a lot of forgiveness. How did, how does that play out both in reality in Oklahoma, like today, because you still have people who are descendants from that and right. how do you incorporate that into your into your movie into your film yeah see so this is where I, and again i'm just praying about this because as a as a mental health therapist i've dealt with people that have been abused physically and sexually abused and i think it's the same pattern you know um you have your you have a person that's been victimized by a perpetrator but part of that journey for them to start functioning today is to, for them to tell the truth of what really happened. And then there's a process of needing to forgive or to let or to detach yourself from the abuse and the trauma that that's been that's been that's been that you have experienced. And so there, there are steps that we take to help people release themselves from the perpetrator, at least emotionally and spiritually. And there's there's even rich spiritual rituals that we can do. We talk about Pope Leo the Thirteenth, and he had he he meant he created the Saint Michael prayer, and so and and mm. that what that that prayer is, is a prayer of a battle against evil, and I believe with mental illness and 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 evil they come together, and people that have been abused, I think they are tormented, not only physical but also spiritually. So there needs to be um, sacramental grace. There needs to be things to help people get free from the torments of their past. And again, I deal with people that have actually been abused. And, and, and there are things that we do to help them release themselves from their perpetrators and then help them move to a place of reconciliation, you know, of, of okay, what can I do today to make life a little bit better? And a lot of these people get involved in advocacy or, or they may do things, you know, we, as, as Catholics, we do penance. So they try to find positive ways of, of making things better for them. And I think that can even happen on a community basis because they experience racism or any type of abuse. Mm. I think it's the same process. Yes, we need to tell the truth, but then we need to, need to move, move to a place of forgiveness. That's why I would love to use the descendants of people that were actually a part of it. And they live right here in Oklahoma. Yeah. And, and, and so, so, and I've been talking with a commission with the right commission and I've shared the story. And my goal is to find those descendants and have them be part of this movie and, and, and find yeah. some of the descendants of, some of the European Americans that are here, let them be a part of the movie so that they will also in proxy be a way of bringing healing to what had happened yeah. in the past. You know, so that that's mm -hmm. what I would like to do with people right here in Oklahoma where it actually happened with the actual descendants and let it be Oklahoma made and, but bring it, bring the Catholic perspective 
to it. So it, it will take prayer because like anything, you know, I've experienced yeah. wounds in my background. And sometimes I want to hang on to certain things, you know, I don't want to let certain things go because, you know, for whatever reason, but, but I, but we know mm -hmm. as Catholics, we experience healing. And I think we could be a message of healing to people that have been traumatized or even those that did the trauma we can we could help we could help that process just like what we did during that time by being agents of of of, of healing a refuge for those who are being traumatized at that point i mean that that was really brave for catholics of 1921 with jim crow to take yeah. in african americans i mean think about that think about the risk i mean they, 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 the, the church could have been attacked the catholics that were involved in that could yeah. have been attacked but but we we jump into the middle of those things and we become agents of rescue and healing. So I think we could do the very same yeah. thing today. I mean, that, that's my hope. And of course, it's only through the Holy Spirit yeah. we can do these things. And that's so good to hear about the Catholic Church being evolved in that way during yeah. what happened in 1921 in Tulsa with the race massacre. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're speaking with Deacon Kevin Stevenson. He's a deacon in the Diocese of Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so we're talking about... Um, a film he's putting together right now. I mean, working on and praying on and discerning and most importantly, getting resources and, and um, uh, monetary resources as well to help really put this together because it's, it's a it has a potential to be a very powerful story. And we see yeah. stories like this, different narratives. Recently on, on Amazon, there's this story called The Underground Railroad. And it was a unique story that um, incorporated um, some modern elements um, in um, some um, some licenses, you know, some liberties. That like so, it was a blend of fiction and the reality of that there was an underground railroad. But it, it turned out it was a story of triumph. It followed a young lady out of slavery, escaping to freedom, and falling in love. She fell in love. She she lost love. Um, and, and she she hope and she despairs so it's like it's like a real journey right and so there there's space for these types of stories that is a story story you know scripture itself is a story right god has told us a story he tells us a love story over and over again we hear that mass all the time a love story so stories have the, the power to to move people and change hearts especially obviously when they're based upon what is true and so, Deacon, how can people get um, a, a hold of you to find out more about your project and maybe find, figure out a way to see how they can help you with resources or anything that you may need? Yeah, um, so so um, the, the way to, the way to give would be coming to my website, Association of Catholic Counselors, and there's a way to give there. Also, I'm on Facebook, and we're doing, we're doing a, um, a GoFundMe. We're also doing some other fundraisers just, just, just for that. And there's some additional projects that we're working on. We're doing one on, on mental health, um, on, on therapy sessions, like what we talked about. And we, we're going to do short takes on that. So we want to do a series of, of films on short films that deal with mental health and deal with reconciliation. So the best way, again, to go to my website, associationcatholiccounselors.com, and, and that's where you can give. Then also, too, you can follow me on Facebook. And um, just other Kevin G. Stevenson, Deacon Kevin Stevenson, and, and you can contact me there. I think, I think those, those are the two best ways that, that you can reach me. And I'll be glad to um, answer any questions that anybody may have. But really what I want most of all is your prayers as we do this. And again, I want to focus like what you said. The story is going to think we're really going to focus on the, that young man and that young woman and their families. 
and what and what mm-hmm. happens with that relationship and then how it spirals out. So you're right. Yeah. We'll be tracking that those two those two kids uh, as things unfold and really get into their lives and really get into what happened and and uh, and there's yeah. going to be a Catholic component to that as well. Yeah, I'm a sucker for a good love story. I'd say I'd be honest. That's why I watch. <laughs> hey, a lot you know of... what? <laughs> I know we're, we're we're men, but you know, but you know what? There's nothing. There's nothing more. There's nothing more dynamic because we all fall in love, right? And you know, and we mm-hmm. and we've experienced risk, and that's what this yeah. is. So you have, you know, so just picture that, and then just the trauma that unfolds because of mm-hmm. whatever fear may be going on in their families, or fear that yeah. may be going on, and we know. Fear is a form of mental illness, and we know that Satan is the author of fear and confusion. Right, right. We know that to be true as, as Catholics. We know that to be true. And so so I, I'm hoping that this could be a way of healing for people that may be dealing with that fear, you know, and, mm-hmm. and or whatever, whatever that may be, whatever that may be causing it. Yeah. And earlier in the show, I was talking about, um, you know, racism as Catholics, you know, racism is a grave sin. It's attached to pride, right? So it's, it's, right. it's real. It's a sin. There's a remedy for it. Christ came um, to destroy sin and death. Um, there, there's a path towards healing through that. Um, I've experienced, um, you know, it's, it's kind of hard whether I say I experienced racism because, we, you know, there's some questions you have to ask to figure, okay, was that racism? Oftentimes that involves a conversation, but definitely I would say, okay, it was prejudice or ignorance. Definitely one of those. Racism, I don't know because I don't know the person that much to know whether what they were doing. Um, yeah. But what's, so what's, how do people recognize that events like Tulsa, happen and to happen there's a tragedy that happened you know whites also died in this but a lot, a lot of black americans died so that right. that's real it affected people that were living race um slavery real affected people who are living jim crow laws real affected people are living voting right. rights where blacks weren't able to you know all these things are real it affected people so but how do you recognize that's real it it it, it affected a community that you may feel that you belong to but how do you not own that as your personal story? How do you not be affected or victimized by that? The other, the other way I can talk think about that is do it, make it personal. Again, with my work, I deal with people that have been actually abused, and it's it's like mm-hmm. the same thing, you know. Um, you know, I, I'm 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 an African Caribbean, you know, so we we immigrated from the West Indies and so on, so. You know, and my dad has a story of discrimination because he went to England. And that time when he went to England, I mean, there was real racism. It was very difficult for him to get an education, you know. But, but mm-hmm. what, what I learned from my father, you know, being, being that Jamaica was a colony of Britain and he went to England. And, but then there's, I mean, the Brits knew how to be, <laughs> knew how to be mean as well. But, um, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, but, but what I, and again, this is my own experience and, and coming from a West Indian background, it's, it's taking your history and realizing that that's not what defines you. I think it's a spiritual piece. Mm-hmm. I, there, it, it, it has to be that this, who am I? So my dad recognized that he wasn't just a product of his circumstances, you know, and my dad came, my dad came mm-hmm. from, from poverty in, in Jamaica. I mean, poverty, sheer poverty, you know, and uh, even yeah. though it's different in the West Indies, but what I learned from my dad is that it wasn't, it's not your circumstances that shape you, but how you view your circumstances. And what that came from is there's a sense of spirituality. And for me, you know, um, it, it's, it's, it's the same thing. Who, I, I, it's my, def, who I identify myself, you know, as, 
And so for me, as a Protestant, I had a very powerful born again experience if I use the word born again. And really what I really did renew my baptismal, my baptismal birth, my baptismal promises. But I began, I began to see myself the way Christ sees me. But yet at the same mm. time, I acknowledge my wounds. But my core definition of who I am is how Christ sees me. And so through scripture, for me, the renewing of my mind, especially when I may struggle and I have, we all have our weaknesses. We all have our faults. We have all experienced rejection. We all do because we walk on the planet. But what helps me is seeing myself the way Christ sees me and doing the best I can and where I am in my circumstances and walking in forgiveness, walking in forgiveness. And that's, and again, I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to say, well, you need to put yourself in a position where you're going to be re-victimized, but choosing to walk in a place of forgiveness and redefining myself the way Christ sees me and then looking to help my brother that struggles more than myself. And I think as, as Catholics, we're really oh, yeah. good at that. We find the least of these. We pour ourselves into others that are struggling. We don't focus on ourselves. We focus on others. We walk in forgiveness, you know, and, and we, we, but at the same time, we tell the truth, you know, and, and yeah. every, everybody, has experienced rejection and abuse at some point in their lives. So, yeah. that, that, that's, thanks, that, Deacon that's Kevin Stevenson. Yes. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the David O. Gray show. Uh, make sure you check out Deacon um, at the Association of Catholic Counselors. You can see his conversion story on a journey home, and hopefully, we'll have him back here. Uh, but thanks for tuning in. I'll be back same time next week, same time, and I look forward to conversing with you again. In between time, visit me online, David O. Gray Info. But until then, until next time, remember, Jesus loves you and is there for you. And live your life like salvation matters. And may the abundance of the Lord's blessings and favors and graces fall upon you and yours. God bless you.